Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. In this episode, I'll be looking at the issues around housing and corporate tax. In the second part of the show, I'll be talking to Owen Burke Kennedy of the Irish Times about his recent column, where he said we're not obsessed with property, we just talk about it a lot because the housing market here is so dysfunctional. Owen also takes me through the latest data on house prices, which won't make for easy listening if you're trying to buy a home. But we'll start with the long-running issues of global corporate taxation. On Tuesday, the French Minister of European Affairs, Clément Beaune, wrote a letter to the Irish people, published in the Irish Times, urging us to reassess our opposition to a global minimum corporate tax rate. This followed Ireland's decision last week not to join 130 other countries in signing up to a draft proposal from the OECD. The Minister also spoke to our Paris correspondent, Lara Marlowe, who joined me on Inside Business for this discussion, as did Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times, who's been covering the many twists and turns of this debate over the past couple of years. I began by asking Lara why a French minister would write to the Irish people about corporate taxation, something that is a matter of national competency within the framework of the EU. I think Mr. Bon feels very personally, strongly personally, about this issue. Uh, he was Macron's uh, advisor on European affairs for three years at the Elysee, and I often interviewed him about uh, tax harmonization at that time. And since he's become the Minister for European Affairs for the last year, he has continued to pursue the issue. Um, he says he, he really loves Ireland. He says uh, one of the best years of his life was his year he spent at Trinity College Dublin. And I, I think it kind of chagrins him to see the Irish making what he believes is, is a great mistake. And he, he sort of feels, because he f- feels so close to Ireland, that perhaps he could put in his, his two bits, as it were. It could help to persuade the Irish to cease what he sees as, as a senseless blockage of a process which, in any case, is going to come to fruition. Um, so he's telling his main arguments are uh, that I- Ireland risks reputational damage if it continues to block the accord. Another main argument uh, is that it was Ireland that wanted this to be dealt with in the OECD rather than by the European Commission. France, um, since the beginning of Macron's term, uh, tried very hard to, to, to reach an, a European agreement, and Ireland said no, um, knowing that, of course, that it has to be done by unanimity in the EU. And I think the French, anyway, suspect that Ireland thought the OECD agreement would never go anywhere. And all that changed, of course, when President Joe Biden embraced uh, the idea of an accord and, and of a minimum tax rate in April. So all this has happened in just the last two months. Sure. And what's the French view on this global corporate tax rate? And we know they're supportive, but where would they, what rate would they like to see it settle at? Because that's still not decided. Well, they're, they've reduced their rate under Macron from over 30% to 25%. I think they would be thrilled if they could get 25%, but they'd probably compromise and take 20%. Um, they're not really talking. I've talked to people at the finance ministry, and they're not saying an exact figure. Uh, but they do want it to be higher than 15%. Okay, Cliff, I mentioned that you've been covering the many twists and turns in this debate over the last uh, while it's been going on now for some time. First of all, just explain the background to the draft proposal from the OECD last week and why did Ireland not sign up to it? Well, um, as Lara said, these talks have been going on for years now and uh, kind of appeared stuck and and been moving very slowly. But uh, Joe Biden's arrival in the White House and uh, domestic US politics have really given them a big 
step forward. So we're talking about kind of a two-phase deal, one uh, or a two-part deal. The first part is the, is the global minimum tax rate uh, with, with disagreement yet about what level that might be set at. And the second is a change in what are called taxing rights, so a change in where companies pay some of their tax. So at the moment, the best way to, to look at that is to take an example. So at the moment, a company like uh, Google, for example, selling into Europe uh, from an Irish headquarters would declare all that profit I- in Ireland and some of it would be taxed in Ireland. In future, the proposal is that some of that tax would be paid in the markets in which Google sells into in Europe, France, Germany, the UK, wherever else, uh, even though Google may have no significant physical presence there. Ireland has more or less signed up to the second part, uh, to the um, to that change in taxing rights, even though it's going to cost the country probably two billion, two billion plus in annual tax revenue. That's kind of the guesstimate that's out there at the moment. It's very hard to be precise um, because the details haven't been set. So that I think has been seen by Ireland as kind of the price of peace in these talks for for a long time now. Uh, but. Ireland has a problem with the uh, with the fifteen percent global minimum tax rate, or rather, it is a problem with the uncertainty over what that rate might be. So the the agreement uh, that the other countries signed up to would that it, is that it would be a rate of at least fifteen percent, uh, and had that perhaps settled at, at a rate of fifteen percent, Ireland might have been happier to sign up at this stage. But because there's still uncertainty about that, and also crucially uncertainty about what the US is going to write into its own legislation. Uh, I think Pascal Donoghue judged that you know he, he couldn't commit now. He needs more certainty before before agreeing to change. If there's going to be one change in the Irish tax rate, I think it, it you know it has to be a, a once off thing, seen as a once off thing, and uh, at a rate I suppose as close as possible to the twelve and a half percent. And as Lara said, countries like France are pushing for for much higher rates. So there's a lot of un, there's a lot of uncertainty there at the moment. So there's still some way to play out in this yet. I think. One of the arguments of the French, by the way, is that if Ireland would support the agreement, it would be much better placed uh, to make its arguments to keep the rate low, uh, that it's better for Ireland to be in it than outside it, and that they can actually have an influence over the final agreement if they do that. So maybe Ireland could keep it down to, I don't know, 17 or 18 percent instead of 20 uh, if if they go along with it. Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting point, and it was interesting also that after the uh, after Ireland was one of the nine holdouts, um, who didn't sign up last week, that the head of the OECD uh, went out of the way to tweet that he was glad that Ireland would remain part of the process or part of the talk, so to speak. Uh, but there is obviously a question now of of, of how exactly that's going to progress, uh, and what exactly Ireland might sign up to, and of course. As Lara referred to then there, and as the French minister referred to, there, there are reputational issues for Ireland here as well. Uh, we're one of nine countries that are holding out. Uh, Estonia and Hungary are the only two other uh, EU countries. Uh, there's a couple of tax havens in the Caribbean and, and a couple of other countries who don't seem to have signed up for because they just couldn't get their act together. Or in the case of Peru, uh, they have no uh, government at the moment because they just had a general election. So it's not exactly a large group to be uh, to be a party of. And ju- just on that point, Liv, it's not a great look for us, is it, to be in with the likes of Barbados and St. Vincent and the Grenadines, Kenya, Nigeria, etc., as as uh, Hungary, yeah, as holdouts. Yeah, no, it's it's it, it it it's it's a bad look, and you would. You would presume, I guess, that uh, the minister thought long and hard about this and about the point that Lara made there. You know, he could have decided to sign up to the deal in principle 
uh, and perhaps still have fallen out along the way over the detail. Uh, but he's decided to uh, to hold out now. I, I I presume to try and get more clarity. If there is an OECD deal, uh, and if the US writes a similar arrangement into its own domestic legislation, it really is very hard to see Ireland holding out against that. I don't think there'd be much point in Ireland holding out against that because that would be the rate that would apply across the world. The only issue is uh, that, of course, for it to apply as a matter of, of law in Europe, uh, we, the EU would need unanimity to, for, for, for everyone to sign up to that. Now, that doesn't mean that a lot of the countries couldn't go ahead anyway and, and just, just impose a new rate uh, and effectively leave Ireland behind. But if everyone else is operating 15, 16, 17% and Ireland is still at 125 then the 12.5% rate is, is largely neutralised anyway from, from Ireland's point of view because of the way that this is, it looks like this will work. Uh, Lara, France has been pushing Ireland on this whole tax issue for many years, hasn't it? And has wanted um, a, a change in the way corporate taxation operates uh, in the European Union and, and globally, I guess. And, and finally, the moment has arrived, uh, courtesy of Joe Biden, it would seem, and Janet Yellen. Absolutely. Uh, and the French are really, really delighted. You have only to see the, uh, the statements by French officials, by Macron himself, by Bruno Le Maire, uh, by Clément Beaune. Uh, they are absolutely thrilled. In fact, they had gone and unilaterally uh, made their own tax on the internet giants. Um, there are about, I think it's nine EU countries have done so. And that tax, which is, which is bringing in hundreds of millions of, of euro into the French, uh, exchequer every year, um, that will disappear once this OECD agreement comes into force. Um, something I wanted to, to, um, mention about Ireland holding out, there is an, a widespread kind of assumption or observation that Ireland is waiting to see what the U.S. Congress will do because they're, they're thinking the Republicans may kill this deal in the U.S. Congress, in which case Ireland will be seen to have uh, succumbed to have given in for nothing because then the agreement would be dead. Um, uh, Clément Bone addressed this in my interview with him. He said, what kind of signal does that send about the European Union if one of our members, a very pro-European member, says it has to wait to see what the U.S. does uh, to go along with the agreement. Um, the French want an EU directive uh, to come into to, to be negotiated and voted after the OECD finalizes the agreement in October. And Ireland could, of course, veto that agreement if it if it wanted to. But again, uh, you know, what where does this put Ireland within the European Union? It's almost a throwback to the old uh, Boston versus Berlin argument under you remember in the days of Mary Harney. Um, I, I think that that Minister um, Donoghue is in a very, very difficult place. I remember interviewing uh, Brian Lenehan and Michael Noonan about this issue when they came to Paris. And one always had the feeling that Irish ministers felt not on my watch, that this was a sort of symbol of Irish identity. It was like mom and apple pie in the US for Ireland. It was low corporate tax. And I, I think there, there has been a recognition for a while anyway that this is coming, um, but the desire has always been to push it off, postpone it as long as one possibly could, um, and suddenly the time has come. Yeah, uh, Cliff, uh, maybe we should have hoped for Donald Trump to get another term in the White House uh, instead of instead of pitching our, our support behind uh, Joe Biden. But maybe you can just take us through the various steps that are going to happen from here on 
um, that might actually uh, bring this deal to fruition. So, for example, there's a, a G20 summit meeting in Venice now in a few days, isn't there? Yeah, there's a G20 summit in Venice chaired by Mario Draghi on Friday and Saturday this week. Former ECB president. Now, the OECD or the deal among the 130 of the 139 countries last week has, is, you know, has kind of cleared the way for political support uh, to, to, to be rubber stamped of that deal uh, at, at the G20 summit. So, so the detail really has been kind of worked out in terms of the G20, but you could see political pressure on the like Ireland, political pressure on the countries like Ireland that haven't signed up, uh, kind of coming to the coming to the fore at uh, at that summit. I think. Then you go into a kind of period of technical negotiations and and also political negotiations over the summer, because while we've seen, I suppose the headlines of this deal. 15%, at least 15% minimum tax and, and a reallocation of taxing rights. Tax is horrendously complicated and there's a huge amount of detail to be worked out here. And that detail will matter very much to a lot of countries, not only to Ireland, but to a lot of countries uh, that have only come on board uh, recently. For example, China, which had been seen as possibly holding out uh, because of its interest in, in manufacturing and, and taxing manufacturing companies at a low level. And also India, they've signed up to the deal, but will be hugely interested in the details. So th- there's a huge amount of detail, uh, detailed work uh, to, to, to be done over the summer to try and land this, if you like, for, for another G20 ministerial meeting in October, which is seen really as the final the final point for this, uh, and then for it to be implemented by 2023 in, in full. So it's it's a very tight timetable in terms of what has to be done. At the same time, um, there's going to be talks in the US Congress to try to land Biden's uh, tax deal, if you like. And there's still some confusion there about how much of this can be done via what's called a re- reconciliation process. In other words, it wouldn't require uh, a two-thirds majority in the Senate and how much uh, would actually involve a change in tax treaties and, and would require a two-thirds majority in, in the Senate. And the importance of that, of course, is that the Democrats only have a wafer-thin majority in, in, in the Senate uh, based on the uh, vice president's casting vote, and they would need uh, uh, 10 or 11 Republicans to come on board to get... They, they, they might need it to get the deal through. So there's still a lot of uncertainty over what will be agreed in the in the U.S., the final thing then to watch, as Lara said, a lot of EU countries have pledged to abandon their own digital taxes, assuming this deal does go through. But the EU Commission is, is, also, is still pushing ahead with the thing called the digital services tax. And I think there's going to be a row about this. Uh, this is similar to the digital tax, except it applies to a lot more companies. And it's basically seen as a way of raising money for the uh, for the European Commission to help repay the borrowings that were taken on as part of the pandemic. Now, the US doesn't like this. It says it targets its companies unfairly. The Europeans are saying, look, it doesn't. This is going to apply to all kinds of different companies. It's it's a different animal to the to the to the digital tax that that that, that was proposed uh, as part of the OECD deal. But there is going to be a row about that. And if there are some tensions at the uh, G20 meeting at the weekend, I think they may be around that. I had a question about um, the Irish finance minister, Pascal Donoghue. Um, I know the French actually supported his appointment as president of the Eurogroup. And I heard Irish officials asking, what, what's behind this? Are they trying, was this kind of a 
backhanded way of bringing him in the fold, as it were. Um, also, as president of the Eurogroup, I believe, but I'm not certain, that he would actually be in Venice uh, when this this um, agreement is He will, voted. yeah, that- you're right. As president of the Eurogroup, he will be there, yeah. And I just wonder, I'd love to ask him, how does he reconcile being pre- representing all of the Euro countries uh, while being one of only three holdouts in the EU against this agreement? Um, it would be very interesting to, to, to watch him in Venice. It would, Lara. And the closest we're going to get to Pascal Donahue's views on that matter uh, is through the mind of Cliff Taylor. So Cliff, perhaps you can address that. <laughs> it's, uh, he keeps his cards close to his chest, uh, Pascal Donahue, I can tell you. Uh, it's an extraordinarily delicate position for him. Uh, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, he will be at the G20 meeting. Uh, but he will be there as president of the Eurogroup. Uh, but because the Eurogroup doesn't have... Uh, uh, isn't in charge of tax uh, across the EU or, or that's not part of its competencies. That actually is part of the ECOFIN's competencies. Uh, I, I don't think he will formally take part in the in that bit of the talks, but of course he, he will be around the, the, the meetings and it will be where the big decisions are taken. So it's a really, uh, a really, really delicate decision for him or a delicate position for him. Uh, and I suppose to make it even trickier, uh, Janet Yellen is due to have discussions with the uh, Eurogroup uh, early next week uh, following the Venice meeting, uh, separately to it, uh, at which this is going to come up as well. So he really is has a very, very difficult and uh, uh, delicate line to walk. Um, it is possible, in fact, that he will meet Janet Yellen in, in a bilateral, I, I would expect, either at the G20 or around the Eurogroup meeting early next week. Uh, they've already met a couple of times uh, to try and discuss this. So you'd love to be a fly on the wall at that because there is enormous pressure coming on from the US on everyone to sign up for this really, really serious diplomatic pressure. So Ireland is getting squeezed from both sides. Uh, and as Lara said, um, and as the French minister said, we were the ones who wanted to sign up to the OECD process to keep the EU off our back. And now that the OECD is coming along, I, I just don't think we can I, politically... I think this. I think what Pascal Dunn, who said last week, wasn't it wasn't a no. It was a not yet. You know. Uh, I think if this deal is done, we're going to have to sign up to it in in, in some way or other. How how soon is yet? Yeah, that's the question. I I, I don't know, Lara. Um, I I just don't know how he's going to play it over the summer or whether he's going to kind of say, you know, the U.S. Congress is not due to decide till the autumn, uh, September, October. Um, so even if he looks from cl- for some clarity from Janet Yellen at this stage, I don't see how she can she can give it to him. She can tell him what the administration wants to do, but she can't say for a matter of fact what's going to get through Congress. So this is all going to come to a head at the same time in September, October. OK, we'll leave it there. We'll see how this uh, plays out in the months ahead. Lara Marlowe and Cliff Taylor, thank you for joining Inside Business. OK, we're going to take a short break now. In the next part of the show, I'll be talking to Owen Burke Kennedy about housing. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Now, are we obsessed in Ireland with property? This is a topic that Owen Burke Kennedy tackled in his most recent Irish Times column, and he joins me on the line now. Owen, you're very welcome. I mean, the um, I suppose the, the old gag is that uh, there are two things that Irish people are obsessed with. Uh, one is the weather and the other is property. Um, but you're saying it's just simply a matter of the market not working. That's why people are talking about it so much. Explain. 
Well, I just wanted to get the point across that uh, this notion that we were peculiarly or chronically obsessed with property has only really come into uh, our kind of focus in in the boom and bust of the 2000s and uh, more recently when a whole cohort of, of younger people are priced out of the market. I don't think there was any discussion in the 1970s and 1980s that we had some sort of, you know, colonial hangover and that made us more obsessed about owning property. So um, I also wanted to make the point that you know, there are some really hard uh, data points behind uh, the current crisis, you know, data points to do with supply, to do with affordability, and uh, on the developer side, to do with viability. And this notion that, you know, we were the kind of authors of our own demise, I just think was overbaked and, and rather kind of silly, actually, uh, when presented with the facts. Yeah, and talking about data points, we had some numbers from D&G this week, the estate agents, um, showing that, uh, house price inflation is running at its highest level now since 2017. Uh, nationally, it was over 11% in June. I mean, that's extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, that comes on the back of two reports from My Home and Daft, which put uh, annual asking price inflation at around 13%, um, you know, which is, um, you know, the biggest uh, level of inflation we've had since around 2015. Now, I, I would just, I, you know, pause there for a second and note that these are asking prices so they're not actual transactions and the CSO's official barometer the property price register puts the level of inflation for April at 4.5%. Now they're based on actual property transactions. So that's probably like uh, likely to go up. So um you know I'm not saying there isn't a demand bubble in the market there certainly is but uh, the level of inflation of those uh, property websites are pretty uncompromising no doubt. Yeah, no, there there obviously were some factors at play in the first half of this year, which were quite unique because of the mm. lockdown that was imposed by the government uh, around Christmas time last year. It wasn't possible to go and view a property. Um, and very few properties uh, or a much reduced number of properties were, were coming to the market. And yet demand is still huge. Yeah. I mean, I think when everyone talks about property, they just see it through, through the guise and through the vortex of supply. And look, we have really chronic supply issues here. But we had those supply issues in the pre-pandemic period and property price inflation was petering out and had turned almost zero nationally and was negative in Dublin. So the current uplift in prices can't solely be explained by supply. So there was other factors at play, COVID-related factors. So we had so we, we a lot of people looked at the savings. Uh, you know, household deposits have increased by around 21 billion since uh, January 2020, um, some of that money must be leaking out into property purchases. Then there's the, the home working boom and the demand for better living spaces. That's created a whole dynamic of its own, um, and that's one possible explanation. But then you've got to think, uh, you know, the uplift in prices here um, is significant, but it's also um, not that uh, unique uh, internationally, we've seen an uplift in prices in, in multiple markets. And actually, Bloomberg did a report um, earlier this month which suggested that our housing market, actually the uplift in, in Ireland's housing market, was modest by international standards. It was actually second lowest on a scale of industrialised country countries. So behind the likes of New Zealand and the US and the UK. So I think what we can say is like property prices globally are being fueled by pandemic-related factors uh, like remote working and savings, as we've mentioned. But there's local factors at play. So in the US, there's, like, there's a massive fiscal stimulus. Um, in the UK, uh, there's stamp duty holidays, which is fueling uh, more purchases. In New Zealand, they actually suspended their macro prudential rules. 
And so in Ireland, you know, maybe the, the supply thing is, is, is the underlying um, dynamic as well as the kind of, um, you know, pandemic factors. Yeah, sure. Yet another policy change from the government uh, on property own. The fast track planning process that's been in place since 2017 is going to end early uh, in October and it's going to be replaced by, um, they're going to bring local authorities back in into the picture uh, essentially and uh, possibly put curbs in place to stop judicial reviews, which a lot of local residents and people who are opposing applications have been, that's the route they've been going to try and stop these developments from happening. Yeah, it was sort of another uh, policy measure with unintended consequences. I mean, this was brought in back in 2017 to to really pick up housing supply and to allow developers kind of navigate the, uh, in some in some cases, torturous planning process a little bit easier. And uh, it seems to have resulted in, in, in a whole uh, raft of judicial reviews, which has, um, you know, stonewalled, and, and I use that term advisedly, a lot of developments on very uh, small and nitpicky sort of grounds. Now, a lot of the residents will say, well, they're entitled to, um, you know, object. Um, so it's 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 another reversal. And of course, this comes on the back of like several other properties, uh, other property measures that we're seeing at the moment, which is kind of tinkering around the edges again, not really changing the dynamic in any material way. So, um, yeah, the outlook... Um, for the market here is just isn't that positive really you know what about the macro prudential rules which um, the central bank have in place they're undertaking a review of those rules a wide-ranging review the first since they were introduced there about whatever it was five or six years ago and there's a lot of criticism of those rules that it's it's holding back the amount that people can borrow um, and some of the developers for example would like to see the the income ratio change from three and a half times your income to four and a half times which I think they have in the UK. Is there likely to be any material change in those rules, do you think? Or, you know, are borrowers still going to ha- uh, have to operate within the broad sort of parameters of what we have at the minute? Yeah, I can't see how there's going to be any change there. I think the central bank is very, um, you know, taken by the fact that maybe these rules have actually slowed uh, headline inflation from where it would have been without them. Um I think the idea of getting borrowers to borrow more as a solution to the housing crisis is, you know, a bit of an iffy notion. Um, so although there's a lot of developers and a lot of people in the industry pushing for a loosening of the rules, I just can't see that as a, long, a long-term fix. And um, the way the central bank is talking about the rules, it really feels that it's it's kind of insured the system against anything like we've seen in the last decade where we ha- we definitely did have, you know, a major credit uh, bubble. And with that in the back of their minds, I just can't see how they would move to the industry step on this issue. Yeah, okay. Listen, we know the problems in the housing market. How do we fix it? Yeah, well, that's the $6 million question and nobody seems to have a clear-cut answer on that. The nearest we got to it is a report by the ERSI recently which suggested the government should double its spending on housing, you know, from 2 to $4 billion and even as much as $7 billion and that they should borrow and start building en masse. And I think that's the kind of that's the kind of policy measure that everybody seems to subscribe to, that we go back to this kind of maybe, uh, you know, old world notion where the government becomes or the state becomes the developer and builds en masse on state lands. Thereby, you would actually take out the land values, which seem to be uh, at the heart of a lot of the um, price equations. And therefore, you would have this kind of mass building out project. Of course, you have an issue then, you know, does the industry have the capacity for that if there was suddenly a big massive new player, i.e. the state, 
you know, uh, building houses on to this level. But this is this is something that uh, more and more people are pushing for, and obviously the RSI um, now advocating it. So that's that's one solution. That's that's a solution that the opposition parties are pushing for. Um, you know, it doesn't change the dynamic that the private industry here, which we're completely reliant on, is not producing housing units for the right prices. And that would still remain to be the case, even if the government did take a segue into building houses for five or ten years and um, address the current supply issues. So the, it's it's very complex. I mean, the model we have uh, for building houses is 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 just not working on a on a price metric for most people. So um, why that is the case is difficult. Um, you know, it seems like uh, we have this um, model that's based uh, it incentivizes landowners to hold on to land and drip feed land into the market to maximize return. This seems to bid up prices and amplify the cycle. And of course, you know, we, we have a very, very volatile property market. So when demand reached fever pitch after the crash in 2013, 2014, 2015, landowners uh, didn't flood the market with development and they actually hoarded it, knowing bigger games were on the way. So the government then, uh, you know, imposed a, a vacant site levy. So we seem to have this kind of reactive state policy around housing. And as everyone listening and everyone knows, the the equation just is not getting better. And that's a big problem politically for the government. Owen, oh, are Fine Gael part of the problem? Because they've been in government now for 10 years. Most of the policy initi- initiatives that we've been talking about uh, have been instigated by Fine Gael. Uh, okay, they're in coalition government now with Fianna Fáil and the Green Party, so I suppose they have to take some responsibility for uh, current measures. But nonetheless, a lot of policy changes have happened on Fine Gael's watch and they essentially have been uh, in government now for a decade, and the dial hasn't moved significantly in terms of the housing crisis. Yeah, well, I think, um, I mean, you could you could say that, but I mean, Fine Gael seem to be kind of like a microcosm of a, of a global issue around property. Um, it seems like governments nowadays they they just don't want to get their hands dirty by building on mass, so they're they're doing a lot of measures, tinkering around the edges, help to buy schemes. They're supporting rents rather than building social housing, which is creating pressures in the rental market. So yes, I mean, uh, you can hold the government to, to account here for, for failing to deal with the issues, but um, have a look at housing markets in America, have a look at housing markets in the UK, have a look at housing markets even in Germany, which used to have the most stable housing market, the envy of, of most of the world, is now seeing um, property price inflation over the last 10 years going over 120%, which is higher than in London and Paris. So, um, yes, they've failed to deal with the issue, but they're not alone globally. Yeah. Uh, finally, Owen, you've been writing about uh, a new cost rental model that's come into play in Dublin. Tell us about that. Yeah. So uh, part as part of the government's affordable housing uh, legislation, they've brought in this new model where um, they're allowing um, approved housing bodies uh, borrow uh, at cheaper rates and um, buy and build homes where they will rent uh, out to prospective tenants at the cost of building and cost of delivery. So this should uh, mean that basically people will be able to rent for cheaper. So the first new estate um, has come on stream uh, by, it's been brought on stream by Cluid, housing agency Cluid, and it's in Balbriggan. And the rents there for two, three and four bedroom uh, units are between 900 and 1100, which is uh, they reckon about 25% below the open market rate. 
So that's one uh, measure that the government have been keen to promote and talk about, and it's come on stream now. I mean, it's only 25 homes, and they hope to deliver maybe uh, 440 the whole year. So it's a good measure. It seems to have definitely worked in terms of the price, but you know, and the amount of homes coming along and the demand in the market don't seem to be near each other at the moment. Yeah, still a small number of homes. But anyway, uh, a useful measure, certainly for those people who are going to live in those homes. Umberg Kennedy, thank you for joining Inside Business. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Lara Marrow, Cliff Taylor and Umberg Kennedy. The show was produced by Suzanne Brennan. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. <laughs>